So Lord, I thank you that we can come this morning together. I thank you that you are such a good God and that we can come and rest in your presence. That we can experience you in a deeper way. And this morning I pray that the words you've laid on my heart, that they would be delivered with clarity, Lord, that they would hit our hearts and our minds and bring fruit, that they would shift things, that they would bring restoration and healing. Holy Spirit, that you come. We welcome you here. Welcome the angels here to assist. Pray for your peace in this place. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. This morning, I, um, I'm just waiting. I'm trying to prolong a little bit so all the kids' church mums come and dads come back in. But uh, this morning, I wanted to share with you um, a message about control. And who is in control? And um, a definition of control is the power to influence or direct people's behaviour or the course of events. It's jurisdiction, power, sway, authority, command, leadership, rule, sovereignty, mastery. And uh, that's the definition of control. So the power to influence or direct people's behaviour or the course of events. And, you know, we don't actually like being controlled, and we don't like giving over our control to others, do we? we? We are an independent lot, and especially if you're an Australian, you really, really like to be independent, and we define our future, and we take control of the reins, and don't, you know, anybody tell us what to do, we're Aussies. And that's the Australian culture. And, you know, it causes people to be independent and self-reliant and get off and do their own thing. And there is great things and attributes in that. But this morning, I want to really challenge that thinking when it comes to our relationship with God. And because independence means self-government, it means self-rule, it means self-determination, sovereignty, non-alignment, freedom and liberty. And when we, as a, as a nation, we think, well, we're independent and we can do what we, we want to do and we're brought up in that, then when we come to know Jesus and he says, well, you follow me, our little flesh kind of has an issue with that. And our mindset about what it means to be an Australian, what it means to live in this country has an issue because we're taught to be independent and self-reliant and don't depend on anybody else and even don't trust anybody else. And if anybody rises too high, what do we do? Chop them down because, you know, that's a tall poppy syndrome and we're good at that. Quite ridiculous, really, you know. Because how are we meant to soar like eagles if we're always getting chopped down? Yeah? And, and what the definition of freedom is, you know, what is it? Many would say that to be free, and we talk about freedom in church a lot, but, it, but we are also, as a nation, we talk about that we're a free nation, that we're not controlled. And that freedom is free from constraints. You're able to do whatever you please. That there's no absolutes. That we self-determine our lives. That we self-rule. You know, something that is really in the society at the moment, there is no absolutes anymore. There's no absolute truth. What is truth? And a lot of what you see in government and the laws and policies that get passed stem from that independent thinking and that there is no absolutes. Don't tell me what to do thinking. And so there is snuck in as what is truth? What is absolutes? And it's every, anybody is up for grabs. 
Your absolute is yours. My, abs- you know, my truth is mine. And so we come away from God's ordained way to live because we're like, well, my truth is this and I want to live this way and it feels good. And yours might be over there. But how do you make a society work? And does it actually bring freedom? Something to think about. We are surrounded, though, by forces of good and evil. And when you, when you look at our world and you look at people's thinking of, I'm self-reliant, I'm independent, they're not actually understanding, and this is what we need to understand to be able to share with others, is we're not actually free to just do whatever in the sense of if you don't know Jesus. We're surrounded by forces of both good and evil. Some would think that we determine our behavior and there's no other forces at work. But we live with another dimension all around us. The spiritual dimension, which has its basis either in good or evil. And you can believe that or not, but if you're here, you would have experienced that there is good and he is God and there is evil and that's the enemy. And the reason you got here is because you understood that there was a spiritual aspect to your life. And where there's a spiritual part of your life, there's a spiritual dimension that has effect on how we live. And that... To be truly free and to be truly not controlled by those forces, we actually have to come into relationship with God because otherwise we're going to be buffeted about by the evil forces that are around. The basis of the evil force is to actually control us, to enslave us really. Their lives will be controlled and devastated by evil and loss and sickness and abuse and every other evil work. That's the spiritual dimension that is around us that there is a battle going on. And too often we forget, and too often, if we know, we forget to tell somebody else. There's people that are struggling with, with the evil forces around them, and they have no idea how to get out of the grips of that control. There's a dimension which has control over other people unless they reach out and grab hold of the hand of Jesus and let him bring them into the light. Because until you grab hold of Jesus, that's what he means by, I have come to set you free. I have come to destroy the works of the evil one. I have come to give you freedom and abundant life that is overflowing. And until we grab out and grab hold of the hand of Jesus, we get stuck in the control of the evil forces of the dimension of spiritual realm that is around us. You know, Michelangelo, he grasped a little of it, I think, when I stood and I looked at the painting on the Sistine Chapel recently that he painted, and there's one of Adam at creation and God reaching out to him to give him life. And, you know, that, re- that was a massive revelation because at the time when that was painted, they only saw God as a judge and a harsh judge and, it was a, and that the world was governed by fear. And here Michelangelo, this painter, got this revelation that God actually reached out and gave life. And they were so used to being governed by fear and control. And the church didn't do a great job back then because it was all about power and control and no freedom. That's what happens when you don't read your Bible, by the way. Stuff comes in and religion comes in and you get fooled. And you get your freedom taken off you. That's why it's so important to know what's in the Word because that's what happened. Is they weren't reading their Bibles. So some guy got up and said, well, this is what you should do. And I'm the head honcho, so you do what I tell you to do. And all across the generations, when people don't read the Word and don't have it, that's what happens. Because you don't know. So you get intimidated and think, oh, well, I better just do that because I want to know God. Read it for yourself. 
Because God doesn't want us to be controlled by fear and intimidation and all the things because that comes from the devil's camp. He is out to control us. He's out of control. And Jesus says, actually, I've come to give you freedom from that control. I've come to give you freedom so that you don't have to be afraid. God created mankind free from slavery and sin. If you look back in Genesis, you see that, that there was no sin, there was no death, there was no wickedness in the Garden of Eden. He made us actually to govern, and he said, I've given you dominion and authority over all creation. God actually called us to govern. He called us to have dominion, dominion and he called us to have authority. But that, control, that, that authority and that, and that power got taken off us when what? Sin came in. We lost that through lack of trust and questioning God's goodness. You know, if, if Adam and Eve back then, and we all have this, so you can't go, oh, well, they messed up and they messed it up for all of us. Because when we look at our own life, we do exactly the same thing. If they hadn't mistrusted and, dis, and you know, questioned God's goodness and love for them, they would never have questioned him saying, don't touch that. Just He said, look after it. Don't touch, you know, don't, don't eat of that. And he said, but the devil, through enslaving Adam and Eve, he stole their birthright and their inheritance. But Jesus got it back for us. He dealt with the sin issue and gained freedom and authority back for us. The point to grab hold of in that is unless we trust and rely on God's goodness and love towards us, we will remain walking and living in bondage. We'll only walk in that freedom that is ours if we let go of the distrust and self-government which causes us to question whether God is actually holding out on us. Adam and Eve messed up because they, they questioned whether God was good. They questioned whether God was trying to hold out on them. And the devil got in and said, really? Is God trying to, you know, what's he trying to hold back from you? And he, they started to question God's goodness. And we can sit there all high and mighty and go, oh, well, I would never have eaten the fruit. But guess what? We too often do it every day. We question God's goodness. We question his love for us. And we distrust him and we start to get into governing and self-reliance and doing it our way, which is control. We hold the controls and God tries to, you know, bless us and speak to us and guide us and, and give us plans and purposes for our life. And yet we hold the controls most of the time. Why? And I think, it's because we're afraid. We're afraid that if we give over the controls to him, that we, he's, he might do something or hold out on us. Because we don't understand that God is truly good and that he truly, truly loves us. Because if we truly, truly had that in the depths of our hearts, we would know that he's not trying to hold out on us. That he loves us, that he loves us, that he loves us. You know, Psalm 81 verse 11 says, The Lord is a sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. Listen to this. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. No good thing, people. No good thing. That's why it's so important to read the Word because when the world screams at you and your circumstances scream at you and other people in your life scream at you, oh, what are you doing? And you're like, I have to take control. I have to make this happen. And we get into fear and we step over to, I'm going to do this. I'm self-reliant. I'm going to self-govern. I'm going to control the controls. Because why? Because we mistrust and we question whether God will withhold from us. 
And yet the word says that he has said he is alert and active watching over to do it. It says that he will not withhold any good thing from those who walk in his ways. Do you want another one? Every good and perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow or turning. James 1 verse 17. There's no shadow in him. There's no variation. He does not suddenly turn mean and stingy. He gives every good and perfect gift comes from him. Romans 8, 13 says, For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. That means Daddy, Father. Daddy. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if we're children, then we're heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we also may be glorified together. He's your daddy, your papa, your heavenly father. And no good thing does he want to withhold from any of us. And if we keep on questioning that and we keep on listening to the lies of the world and the lies that the enemy just sows out there, we're just the same as back in the garden questioning God's goodness. And so we keep on taking control. We go, God, please just help me. And he goes, okay. Let me lead. No, no. Why no, no? Because deep down, we still mistrust his goodness. And we've got to be transformed by the renewing of our mind, by what God says about himself and how he feels about us. It says that he lavishes his love upon us. Lavishes. That's over the top, by the way. You know, with cream on top and cherries and chocolate flake and jam and cream in the middle. He's, the, you know, the creamy, creamy donut. Has anybody had Krispy Kreme since they arrived in town? He's the, you know, custard in the middle, chocolate on top. You know, fat of the gospel. That's, that's God. That he wants to give us every good thing. That he, lav- the word is lavish. That he lavishes his love upon him because we're his sons and his daughters. Because he is good. He is good. And he loves us. And he loves creation. But we... Struggle to trust him. He wants us to follow him and follow his lead. Has anybody, when you're a kid, you ever played follow the leader? You know, you stepped in the step of those in front of you. That's what God wants us to be. He says, come follow me. Come follow me. Not me going over here, oh, I want to go this way, thank you. No, he says, come follow me. Watch where I walk and walk where I walk. I'm there with you. Follow me. And my way of doing things and my way of being right. And I will look after you. He says, there's a light unto our feet and a lamp unto our paths. He's a light unto our feet and a lamp unto our path. We don't have to worry about tomorrow. He's got it. Why? Because he will not withhold any good thing for those who walk uprightly. Good reason to walk up straight. I think we struggle to let the controls go because we think, I think we're afraid. If we give control over to something else or someone else or to God, we're worried something bad might happen. And so we hold on to the controls. Maybe you've been hurt or you've seen somebody else being hurt and you're like, that's not going to happen to me. And so you don't trust many people or anyone. And because of that, it filters over and you struggle to trust God. The world actually screams, if God is so good, then why is there so much suffering and tragedy? 
If God is so good, then why is there so much suffering and tragedy? Tragic events happen all around us every day on top of the everyday stuff that we have to deal with. And maybe that includes yours. There's stuff that happens around us. You just have to turn on the news, read a newspaper, look at the news feed on your Facebook. It's like there's so much happening. There's illness, abuse, broken relationships, betrayal, sorrow, illness, disappointment, heartache, crime, death. And we ask the question too often. And it's a question that God wants to answer. Is why? Why, if God is so good, is there so much stuff that happens? And it's okay to ask why. And it's okay to say, well, what's going on here, God? Why me? Why now? Why, God? If you're so good, does that happen? Because if we can answer that question and find peace on that question, you know what? We'll let God have control. So that's what we want to hit this morning. The why question. The question actually goes back thousands of years. And if you read Job or the Psalms, you still see, you see it there. Why is my world so terrible? I'm hiding in a cave. Everybody's trying to kill me. Why have my children all died and I've got boils all over my body? Just read Job. You know, he gets happy towards the end. And I, the Psalms read it. It's, you know, and it's a question that they ask and it's as relevant today as it was back then. Why do bad things happen even to good people? And too often we take that question, why do bad things happen to good people? And we respond in fear and we grab hold of the control of our life. And actually, when we grab hold of the control of our life, we also try to control everybody else's. Don't we? We try to control what our kids do, what our spouse does, what our siblings might do. We're just like, if I can just keep everybody safe and everybody just doing, you know, what I think they should do, then nothing bad is going to happen. I'm not the only one that thinks that, am I? Yeah, if, I, if everybody just did what I said, then everything would be all right. I say that quite often in my house. If you just did what I said, you'd be fine. I'm not a control freak. <laughs> but it's like we do that because we get afraid. If you just did what I said, it'll be all right. And we get annoyed when they don't do what we said because we can see what's going to happen and still they do what we said. Do you know they do the opposite? Yeah? Don't raise your eyebrows at me. And it's like that. We have to get to the point where we step into trusting God because trying to control everything in your life and then trying to control everybody else's life is very, very exhausting. Amen? Come on now. I'm not the only little controlly guru. Come on now. When we try to control everything and every aspect of our life, we're just going to exhaust ourselves. And you know what? We forget to live it because we're so busy getting all the variables right. If I do this and I save for that and I organize that and I study this and I marry that person or I keep my husband in line, da, 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 everything's going to be right. If he doesn't eat that and he eats that instead, if he exercises, come on now, I'm not the only one. You love me really, babe. (laughs) It's exhausting. It's exhausting and it sucks the life and joy and happiness out of us because we're so control. We're control freaks. Come on. And Jesus said, he doesn't want us to live like that. He said, follow me and my way of doing things and I will give you fullness and abundant, overflowing, spectacular life. It doesn't mean there won't be hiccups along the way. It doesn't mean there won't, won't be hard stuff. He actually says in John chapter 16, verse 33, you will have hard stuff. 
You will have suffering. You will have trials in this world. He actually says it. He prepares it. Contrary to other leaders of religious leaders who wrote off pain and suffering as just being illusions, Jesus was really honest. He says, you're going to have hard stuff happen. He didn't say you might. He said it'll happen. There's going to be hard stuff happen in your life. There's going to be stuff that is hard to take. There's going to be hard stuff that you see around you. But he said, it's going to be all right. And I'll get to that later. But he said, you will have stuff happen in your world. Why? Why do we have to have that? And if you ask me straight out, if you had a situation, why did this happen? Why did God allow this to happen? Most of the time, most of us can't give a full answer. We actually don't know why individual things happen. Why there's so much suffering. Why does God allow it? We can't stand in the shoes of God and give a complete answer to that question for every specific suffering or tragedy. 1 Corinthians 13, 12 says, Now we see things imperfectly, like puzzling reflections in a mirror. But then, when we're in glory with him, we will see everything with perfect clarity. All that I know now is partial and incomplete, but then I will know everything completely, just as God now knows me completely. We don't see everything fully yet. When you ask about specific individual events and want to know why this particular thing happened, we won't get the full answer this side of heaven until we're fully in glory and we can get perspective. He does give us some understanding and when we spend time with him and wait on him, and he does give us understanding. But he also gives us peace and healing and comfort from the sorrow and hurt. I can't tell you fully in a nice little cookie-cutter answer why my younger brother at 24 years old was going to work on an aeroplane up to Leonora and the plane never made it and instead crashed in a mountainside in Queensland. I can't tell you in a nice little neat answer why that happened. I've got some understanding and the Lord's ministered to me on it. But I won't get the full picture until I sit in glory, done this life, and just go, yeah, that makes sense. We spend time with the Lord and he gives us glimpses. But we see things imperfectly. And we're weighed down sometimes by what we wanted to happen, the control thing again. I don't understand all the answers and specific events. You know, that's not actually what people need to hear. They don't necessarily need to hear why did this happen and have some great big theological discussion about it. In the midst of our pain, any intellectual response is going to be inadequate. What we desperately need at those times in our lives and the lives of others is a very real and comforting presence of Jesus. Jesus is the one that answers that. He's the one that healed my heart. He's the one that gave peace to my mind. He's the one that comforted me in my morning. He's the one that enabled me to dance. He's the one. And you can't get that by intellectual discussion of why, if God is so good. Because specific things, we don't see everything clearly. But I do know that if you come and sit at his feet, that he will comfort your heart and he'll speak things. And some of it does make sense. But today, let's focus on the big issue of why there is suffering in people's lives in a worldwide thing, and in your and my lives. Not just specific events, because it's important, even though we can't understand everything about it, we can understand some things, and that's what I've learned. 
I can understand some things, why I've had loss, why there's been sickness, why there's been people die way before they should have, why this happened. There is some things that God shows you and there's some things in the word. It's like if you were driving a car and it's a very, very foggy, dark day and you can't see anything and you've got your fog lights on and you can't see still and then this big truck comes and pulls in front of you down the road and he's got big, big fog lights. You know, the big ones? And you go, oh, I'll just follow that, that car. I'll just follow that truck. And his light of the truck shines and shows you the way. And it's a bit like that, that things, that suffering and tragedies can be a bit like that foggy day. We may be able to make out the details of why, but they're obscured from our view. But there are, are some key biblical truths that can point the way in lights, just like that truck that we're driving along and we're going, God, why? But there's some things in his word that do show us. So if you've got a pen with me or you can listen to it again online, point one is God is not the creator of evil and suffering. The answer to the question you hear so often, why didn't God merely create a world where tragedy and suffering didn't exist? The answer is he did. The answer is he did. Genesis 1.31 says, God saw that all he made was good. Very good, in fact. So if God is not the author of tragedy or evil or death, where did it come from? God has existed from eternity past as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And together they're in perfect love. So love is the highest value of the universe. God actually created the world out of love. He let out its essence of love. We're actually surrounded by him. You know, it wasn't that the sun and the moon were created first. It says that he, create, he let, them, let out himself. And he created the lights that we see in the heavens later. It's that he created and there was darkness and he went, Phew. he let out his essence and his essence is love. So that is the highest value in the universe. And when God decided to create us, he wanted us to experience love. So he gave us the ability to love, and in doing that, he gave us the free will to decide. Because true love is freedom. True love is choice. God didn't make us like little cookie-cutter robots that you just like, you have to love me. What sort of God would he have been? He wanted relationship with us. He wanted a family, so he made us. And he said, all right, I'm going to give you the ability to choose whether you love me or not. And mankind chose. Because if you're programmed to say, I love you, it really wouldn't be love. So in order for us to experience love, he gave us a free will. And we abused it by rejecting God and questioning his love and walking away for it. And the result is what happens is there is two types of evil that came in. There's moral evil and there's natural evil. Moral evil is immorality and pain and suffering and tragedy that comes because we choose to be selfish We choose to be arrogant and uncaring and hateful and abusive. We choose. We choose love. We choose evil. So much of the world's suffering, because remember we're asking, why is there suffering? Why, if God is so good, is there all this stuff? So much of the world's suffering results from sinful action or inaction on the behalf of us. For example, people look at a famine and wonder where God is. Why is God letting those children starve? Why, God, if you're such a good God, is that happening? And yet the world produces enough food for each person to have 3,000 calories a day. 
3,000 calories. A normal diet where you, you know your right weight is about 1,500 to 2,000 calories. 3,000 calories a day and it's our own irresponsibility and self-centeredness that prevents other people from being fed. So why do we blame it on God? That's we haven't chosen to love. The other hands, we look at your hand. Look at your hand. You can choose to use that hand to hold a knife or a gun or a weapon of some sort and shoot someone or you can use it to feed or to bless or bring compassion. It's your choice what you do with that. So that's what we call moral choice, moral evil or moral good. It's unfair to shoot someone or beat someone up or use it to bring harm and then blame God for the existence of evil and suffering in the world. It's our choice what we've done with it. As mankind, it's our choice what we have done. If we gave and, and, you know, followed God's right way of doing things, there would not be some of the stuff that you see in the world, some of the tragedy, some of the suffering, because each one of us is responsible for what we do and how we live and whether we choose to live in love. God created us and he said, you've got the blessing on you. You've got the blessing in your hand. I bless you. I've given you authority and a dominion. Go and do something good with it. And what do we do? We're like Uncle Scrooge. We keep it and we hoard it up in a little bank all for ourselves. Oh, we give a little bit. But you know, does God have it? Does God have control of everything? Or we're like, I'm good enough. Are you? Yeah? That's where the suffering and tragedy that you so often see around you, the homeless, the hungry, the children that have nowhere to go because there's not enough foster homes. The little ones that come in here that, to be honest, are sometimes not fed because their families aren't functioning properly. They aren't clothed. Let the little ones come unto me as such is the kingdom of heaven made. Why is there so much suffering? Well, point one is that sometimes it's because we just don't do anything. As the rest of mankind, we sit on our hands. We do nothing with what's in our hand. It's unfair to blame God when we could do something. The other side is the second kind of evil is called natural evil. There's the things like wildfires, earthquakes, tornadoes, if you're in America, willy-willy hurricanes or whatever. What are those willy-willy things? <laughs> hurricanes, bushfires. And that caused suffering to people. When sin came into the world, nature began to revolt. The earth was cursed and genetic breakdown and disease began and pain and death became a part of human experience. The Bible says it's because of sin that nature was corrupted and that's where you get thorns and thistles and all the hard work when you're weeding the garden. It came in with sin. But the Bible says in Galatians that we have been set free from the curse of the law of sin and death but we have to actually grab hold of what we've been set free of and appropriate it in our life. We have the responsibility to govern and take dominion and authority over the natural world and the curse that we see in operation. That's why we're meant to spread the blessing. That's why God wants you to know how powerful each one of us are. You can speak to the weather and say, no, there will not be storms that blow down fences and cause harm and destruction. You can speak to the weather. That's what Justin Abraham was talking when he was saying, come on, how, you need to govern. 
Ecclesia, the church, the word that Jesus used is government. We are actually called to govern. You can speak to situations and govern. Jesus said, I've I've returned to you the dominion and authority that you were given and the curse of the law of sin and death is broken, so govern. So when's the last time that you spoke to the weather? I know you think I'm nuts, you know, you think I'm crazy, but it's true. You can speak to the weather and tell it to behave. Go up to the clouds and close them up, honour them for the rain, but if there's a big storm coming and they're saying there's going to be destruction, you can speak to that. You can. Why? Because you've been given dominion over all of creation. Jesus gave it to you. You can have dominion, you know, when you see sickness, when you see death that should not be happening, we are called to govern. And when we don't, that's what happens. We sit on our hands and we don't take our place. So we do have a responsibility. Being a Christian is not just having a nice little comfortable life where everything in our world is okay and I'm okay, I'm good, God bless me. And God, when I get it all sorted out, then I'll do something. No, use what you've got. Because why is there suffering? Why is there tragedy? Too often it's because we don't do anything with what we've got. Take what you've got. And use the little that you feel you have and do what God asks you to do to bring blessing and combat the curse and the tragedy and the suffering that's right in front of us on our doorstep every day of the week. When you see somebody across the road, when you see somebody across the room and you can see and God says, go and talk to that person, just walk across the room. Walk across the room because you do not know what they're going through. But if God directs you or you just see someone, you don't need a voice, you know, with writing in the clouds, just go across the room and talk to them and love them and bless them. You have no idea sometimes what a big difference that'll make. Walk across the room. Walk across the car park. You know, there's so many accounts of people where they're about to commit suicide and somebody just walked across to them and said, hey, how are you going? Are you okay? I mean, the commit, belong, act thing, they say, or the depression and stuff, they say, just go across and say, are you okay? Just those couple of words could save somebody's life. Why is there so much suffering? I'm not trying to put it in a nice little, you know, thing, but, but there is things that happen because we don't do what we're meant to do. We have the po- whole point of spreading the blessing is to combat the curse. God did not create evil and suffering, but it was human beings and our free will who brought that potential evil into reality. Some people ask, couldn't God have foreseen all of this? And no doubt he did. But look at it this way. Many of you are parents, or maybe you want to be parents one day. And even before you had children, you must have thought, or had the thought, we might have been in delusion, that there was a very real possibility that you may suffer some disappointment or pain or heartache, or worry, or hurt even, and even maybe that your children might be upset at you and walk out the door. But you still had them, or you still want them. Why? Because you knew there was also the massive, amazing, tremendous potential for deep joy and love and great meaning. So you still had them. Your parents still had you. Because they were willing to take the risk. 
Yes, God saw the potential for us to mess up, and yet he had so much love that he just wanted to give it. And so he took the risk that we might choose not to love him, that we might choose to be awful, that we might choose to walk away from him, and yet he chose, I'll take the risk because I love them. Something to think about. He undoubtedly knew we'd rebel against him, but he also knew many people would choose to follow him and have a relationship with him and spend eternity in heaven with him. And he said, that's worth it. Because you're here, because you've gone, I want to follow you, because you said yes to him. He says, just you is worth it. I created the world. I created mankind so that just you, even if it was just you, would be worth all that. Jesus went to the cross to die for each one of us. And if it had just been you, he would have still done it because he says that you're worth it. He, is willing, he was willing to take the risk because he says that each one of us is worth it. Number two, and I'll move quicker. Though suffering isn't good, God can use it to accomplish good. Romans 8.28 says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. It doesn't say there that God causes evil and suffering. And this is why it's so important that we read the Bible because we look and see what God says. Because otherwise you can just listen to the world, you can listen to religion. God is a judge. They must have some, some, something wrong. They must have sin in their life and that's why stuff is happening to them and that's religion that says that. Oh, well, they must, you know, you know, God's just testing them. God's, you know, trialing them. He's perfecting things in them. You know, and, and so we, we struggle with that. But God doesn't say that. He says that he is good. And he doesn't say that he sends evil. He says that he'll work good in everything that happens in our life. It doesn't say how he'll do it and when he'll do it. He just says he will. He says he will in all things. Get that, all things, every little detail, everything from your past, everything from your present, everything from now, everything in the future, he says that in all things he will work for good for those who love him. And everything he'll work for good. He turns lemons into lemonade. It's an old saying. Remember, we only see dimly in this world. We only see dimly. And also notice that he says it's only those who are called according to his promise. He doesn't promise to everyone that he's going to work everything out for good. He says for those who follow him. Because when you follow him, you give him control. And then he can work and he can restore and he can heal. Unless you put your life in his hands, he can't do much with it. Because remember, we're in a spiritual battle. There's a spiritual dimension and the wicked one is out to control and to steal and rob and kill and destroy. And Jesus said, if you put your life in my hands, no matter what you're going through, in everything I'll work out the good for those who know him according to his purpose. It's not for everyone. And that's why we do what we do. That's why we share what we know about Jesus because then we're able to rescue. Jesus is able to rescue them out of that life, out of that control, the evil one, and God is able to get in there all things. You know, Old Testament gives a great example with the story of Joseph. And Joseph, he, you know, got sold into slavery, stuck in a well, beaten up, all sorts of things. And yet at the end of the story, it says in Genesis 50, 
He says, you intended to harm me, he said to his brothers. So great lot. If you think you've got problems with your family, read about Joseph. <laughs> I should remember. But God intended it for good to accomplish what has now been done, the saving of many lives. God worked in it. God worked in it. I'm sure that God didn't want Joseph stuck down a well, but he sure worked on him. He was a little bit of an arrogant teenager, if you were. You know, he strutted around in his coat. He did, you know, like when we get something new and um, your siblings haven't been given it from, you know, it's not their birthday and, and, you know, we have this little bit of jealousy, the little green monster comes up. And he strutted around in his, in his coloured coat that his father had over given him because he was dad's favourite. And, you know, he had a bit of pride. So God worked in him. So at the end of his life, you see that he wasn't so prideful. And he says, it's okay, brothers. You, you beat me up. You took my clothes. You took my nice coat. You stuck me in a well and sold me for years. But it's okay because God worked for good. Perspective is a great thing, isn't it? He could see at the end and God worked in him. So whatever you're experiencing, you can draw something good from it. God will draw something good from it if you put your life in his hands. No matter what, no matter where. Because he suffered and he knows. That God took the very worst thing that all could have happened in all of the history of the universe. God dying on a cross. And he made something awesome and fantastic out of it. He turned the very worst thing into the best thing that has happened in all history. God can take the very worst circumstances of our life and make something out of them. And take the negative circumstance of our life and create something good from them. He can create something good from them. So whatever you've suffered, if you draw close to him, he'll mould you and shape your character. He'll shape you. He'll mould you. He'll do something in you and make you stronger. He'll draw something good from the pain in a multitude of ways if we just trust and follow him. Number three is the day is coming where suffering will cease and God will judge evil. A lot of times you'll hear people say, if God has the power to eradicate evil and suffering, then why doesn't he do it now? Why doesn't he do it? And the answer is because he hasn't doesn't, done it yet doesn't mean he's not going to do it. Just because God hasn't done what we can see he should do doesn't mean he's not going to do it. You know why? Because he's holding back. The story isn't finished yet. It's not completely unfolded yet. Bible says that the story of this world isn't over. It says the day will come when sickness and pain will be eradicated and people will be held accountable for every evil they've committed. Justice will be served in his perfect way. And that day will come, but not yet. And you know why? Because God is holding back for you and for those you love and for those you see every day that you go to school or work or uni with. Those loved ones, he's holding back the consummation of history and anticipation that many will come to him. He's holding back judging and bringing justice to the world because he wants all to come to know him, that none should perish. If you're wondering why God doesn't eradicate evil, it's because he's trying to save those ones that are in bondage still. He's trying to save your loved ones. He's trying to save you sitting right here if you don't know him already. He is holding back the end time of the history being finished on this world because he wants none to perish. He wants all to come to know him. And he knows, but he's holding back. He's holding back 
so that they have a chance to come to know him and so we have a chance to share it. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. 2 Peter 3 verse 9. That's why. That's why he doesn't just wipe everybody out. That's why he doesn't wipe out ISIS. We want it to be. But you know what? There's hundreds and hundreds of Muslim people who are violent and doing that and got that way of thinking that are getting saved. Did you know that? We would just think, why just wipe them all out? And yet he loves them. So he holds back. Suffering will pale in comparison to what God has in store for us, number four. It's not minimizing pain and suffering, but it helps if we take a long-term perspective. Paul is a great one for this. It says in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 17, for a light affliction, which is but for a moment. A light affliction. This guy suffered through beatings and stonings and shipwrecks and imprisonments and rejection and hunger and thirst and homelessness and far more pain than any of us will probably ever experience in life. And these were his words. My light afflictions, which are but for a moment. Five different times his back was shredded when he was flogged. 39 lashes with a whip. Three times he was beaten to a pulp by robs. But he says, for our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. He also wrote in Romans 8, 18, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. No matter what we're going through, and I'm not minimizing what we can go through, but we have to get a heavenly perspective. That man, he went through far more suffering than any of us will probably ever experience, and yet he was able to see and say, it's just for a moment, our light afflictions. Because it's a matter of perspective and heavenly perspective, and it is for a moment compared with the whole of eternity. It's a bit like, has anybody seen that movie, Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Bad Day? Anybody? Well, just think for a moment. Let's say on the first day of the year, you had an awful, terrible day. You had an emergency root canal at the dentist, you ran out, and they ran out of painkillers. You crashed your car on the way home because you were so uncomfortable, and you have no insurance. Your investments took a nosedive. Your spouse got sick. A friend betrayed you. From start to finish, it was like that movie, Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Bad Day. But then... Every other day of the year was just incredibly terrific. Your relationship with God is close and intimate and real. A friend wins the lottery and gives you $10 million. You get promoted at work to your dream job. You have your first baby and he's awesome and beautiful and everything you could ever imagine. Your marriage or your relationship so idyllic. Your health is fabulous and you have a six-month vacation to Europe. Woohoo! Then the next year's New Year's Day, someone asks, so how was your year? what would you say? It was great. It was wonderful. And they'd say, but didn't it start out bad? Oh yeah, that day when I had the root canal and I crashed my car and there was no insurance and I, you know, my friend betrayed me and my spouse got sick. But you didn't go through, you you went through a lot of trouble on that first day, your friend asks. And you think back and say, yeah, you're right. That was a bad day. No denying it. It was really difficult. It was hard. It was painful. But when I look at the totality of the year, when I put everything in context, it's been a great year. 
The 364 terrific days far outweigh that one bad day. That day just sort of fades away. And that's a good analogy with God. When he looks at our life, he sees. He sees what he has planned for us. And he says, I give you a hope and a future. Not to harm you, but to bless you. And then he says, and then look at eternity in heaven with me. That's not to deny the pain that we can suffer right now. It might be terrible. But our future up ahead, tomorrow and the next day and the next day, God says is good. And our eternity in heaven is wonderful. Words cannot express the joy and delight and fulfillment and glory and speckiness of heaven. It is an awesome place. And that's what he wants it to us to experience as we go go into the heavenlies and spend time with him because we know what's coming every day that we can just stay there. So even though we may have Alexander's terrible, no good, bad day, where things that can happen that are hard to handle, but God says keep it in perspective because they are our light afflictions that are just for a moment compared to eternity. And we will get through. You know, when my brother died, God said, it's going to be really hard for a while, but you're going to be okay. And I am okay. It's going to be hard for a while, but you're going to be okay. You're going to be okay. 1 Corinthians 2.9 says, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. You haven't even imagined yet what God has prepared for you. And if you imagine, you know what it says in Ephesians 3.20? He says that he'll do far, above, beyond, abundantly, over the top, what you can think or dream or imagine. So imagine more people because God promises that he'll do more. That's a good reason to dream. Lastly, we decide whether we turn bitter or turn to God. When there's suffering that causes one person to turn bitter and to reject God, to become angry and sullen and hard, can cause another person to turn to God and to become more gentle and loving and compassionate and willing to reach out to others. I saw that, really. I'm going to use your mum for an illustration for a minute. My dad, he, he struggled with my brother's death. He went away from God. He blamed God. He couldn't understand because, you know what, he didn't know that God loved him. All through his life, he struggled thinking that God was trying to hold out on him. And he had to hold the controls. My mum, on the other hand, wept before God, cried out to him and came before God and drew close to him. My dad ran away. My, God, my mum ran to him. You see the difference? And now when people suffer loss and heartache, you send mum in. Because she's been there and she's compassionate and she's loving. My dad, he struggled until his dying day. When finally he came and he said, all right, God, I give up. You can have control. And then he went to be in glory. But he wasted a lot of years getting bitter and angry and saying, I will hold control. I'll hold control. One philosopher said, I believe all suffering is at least potential good, an opportunity for good. It's up to our free choice to actualize that potential. Not all of us will benefit from suffering and learn from it because it's up to us. It's up to our free will and our choice. We make the choice either to run to God or to run away. When tragedy strikes, when suffering or hard things happen, and Jesus said they'll come, 
We make the choice whether to run to God or to have a hissy fit and run the other way. Jesus said, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. You will have trials. You will have suffering in this world. But the rest of the verse says this, but be courageous. I have conquered it. I've conquered the world and you're going to be okay. You may have an Alexander's terrible, no good day, but in perspective of all of your life and all of eternity, you're going to be okay. Everything is going to be all right. I'm there for you. Jesus offers us two very things we need when we're hurting. He, needs a, he offers us peace to deal with our present and courage to deal with our future. Why? Because he's conquered it. He says, you are made victorious. I have conquered the world. Through his own suffering and death, he has deprived this world of its ultimate power over you. Suffering doesn't have to have the last word anymore. And death doesn't have to have the last word anymore. Jesus has the last word. But that's our choice, whether we take hold of that. Suffering does not have to have the last word. Abuse and loss and hurt and disappointment and heartache does not have to have the last word. If you grab hold of the hand of Jesus and you say, Jesus, I take you into my life. I take you into that suffering and disappointment and abuse and heartache. He will have the last word. And he says he makes all things. Work together for good for those who walk according to his purpose. All things. But you've got to take him into it. And he has the last word. Not the stinky devil. Not those who hurt you. Not the disappointments. He has the last word. Amen? But we've got to take hold of him and let him have it. Let him have the last word. And then you stick it to the devil. And you say, what you have meant for harm, Jesus will make for good. Amen? You've got to stick it to that devil. I'm living testimony of that. Where enemy has tried to cause harm and abuse and heartache and sickness and every other stinky thing, God worked out good in me. Where I was intimidated, where I was timid, where I was beaten down, where I was broken, I grabbed a hold of the hand of Jesus and I said, God, you take me and you lead me and you heal me and you restore me and I'm a living testimony to that. Amen? Just ask my mum. God's ultimate answer is suffering isn't an explanation, is Jesus. Suffering is a personal problem and it demands a personal response. And a heavenly father isn't some distant, detached and disinterested God. He entered into our suffering. He entered into our world and personally dealt with the suffering and experienced our pain. Jesus is there in the lowest points of our lives. Are you broken? He was broken. Are you despised? He was despised and rejected. Did you cry out that you can't take it anymore? He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Did someone betray you? He was sold out. Are your relationships broken? He loved and he was rejected. Did people turn from you? They hid their faces from him like he was a leper. Does he descend into all of the hell like you feel like I'm in the pit of hell? Yes, he did. From the depths of a Nazi death camp, Corrie Ten Boom wrote from these words, No matter how deep our darkness, he is deeper. Still, every tear we shed becomes his tear. Why? Because when Jesus says, I'm in you and you're in me, he's in the midst of the pain. He's in the middle of it. So when somebody says, why? Why is God, if God is so good, is there suffering? Go back and think. 
well, what can I do to alleviate somebody else's suffering? Because there is moral and there is natural evil that we have a responsibility to bring the blessing to. When you're finding it hard and you're thinking, I can't take this anymore, or where was God in that? Go back and go, Jesus, I take your hand in the middle of that and, let, and know that he is in the midst of that and he felt it. He was there. He was there. You'll find peace for the present, courage for the future, and the promise of heaven when you put your hand in Jesus. He doesn't cause the suffering. God didn't, he is a good God. There is no evil. There is no turning his shadow or anything like that in him. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He doesn't just suddenly change his mind when you arrived on the planet. Oh, I'm going to, you know, work something out of him by make, or her by making their life awful. No. That's a lie of the stinky devil. He's no changing in him. He's a good God. But he does want us to take his hand and let his life and his strength, even in the midst of hard stuff, work all things together for good. The choice is ours. We can run from him, but I advise that you run to him. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you love us so much. I thank you that you are good. Lord, I pray that the words I've spoken this morning would just sink into our hearts, that they'd renew our minds, that we understand that you are a good God. Lord, where there's been pain and suffering, Lord, I pray that you would make yourself real in those moments, in those times in those circumstances, to heal the hurt, to restore, Lord, to restore. And, Lord, I pray for those who maybe haven't, haven't gone through a lot, but yet we look around us and see everybody else struggling, that we would use what we have in our hand, the love that's in our hearts, to bless, to bless, Lord, to walk across the room, to say, are you Okay because we just never know if it could save somebody's life. Lord, use us, heal us, restore us. I pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen.